the Bible was fundamental to our survival. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to the Profile Podcast. You're going to be hearing the most incredible testimony today of David Donovan, a medical missionary working in Nigeria, how he was kidnapped and held at gunpoint for 22 days. How the Bible, in his words, was fundamental to his survival and what he learnt about God's sovereignty, even in the most testing and trying of circumstances. Just before we head into that interview, wanted to let you know that I am the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. We publish every single month and the story you're about to hear is in the latest issue of the magazine. Plus, loads more interviews and features, reviews, the latest analysis on church trends and so much more. So if you do want to pick up a copy, you can request one absolutely free of charge at premierchristianity.com. But for now, let's listen into this incredible testimony. This is David Donovan talking about his experiences in Nigeria. Let's listen in. David, thank you so much for talking to us. I'd love to start a little bit with your own personal story. Can you tell me something of how you first became a Christian? Once I was given a tract at a music festival when I was 16. And uh, at the time, there was something intrinsic in it that I recognised was important and I kept that tract and in fact I still have it and I considered it it was called help from above and it was just bible verses pertaining to different situations of life and the university um, I still had the tract on me and I took it out at that time and considered it and went to the word and felt it was speaking directly to me and at the time I was going to a Neelam uh, church in Edinburgh and it was there at a gospel service at half past six on November um, when I was 20 uh, that I gave my life to Christ. And making that decision has had um, pretty massive kind of consequences in your, in your life since, since then. And we'll come on, we'll talk about um, what happened when you were a missionary in, in Nigeria. But before we get there, do you remember what were the kind of immediate consequences for you? I mean, what changed because of that decision to follow Jesus in your life? It would be nice to say it was a binary change from black to white. But, you know, we are in the world, even though we're not of the world and the university, and then uh, I retrained as a doctor, married with children. Uh, The world comes in, and I think if I look back, I had 20 years of self-deception in a way of thinking I was Christian, when in actual fact I was very much half in the world and a nod and a wink to, to my faith. I hadn't really counted the cost at that time, And I think that leads to a permanent sense of restlessness and dissatisfaction because you neither enjoy the blessings of walking with Christ and maturing in your faith, but also you partake of things in the world with just a sense of dis-ease and, I wouldn't say guilt, but just unease, um, that there's something else that is calling you. And it was only after 20 years that God arrested us as a couple and I think demanded a review and a seriousness of you know choose this day whom you will serve and at that point I wholeheartedly decided to follow Christ and I think that's always a danger in Christianity that we see it in a cultural way instead of actually counting the cost as it says in Colossians you know we are dead and hid with Christ in God if we're truly dead then it is uh it just changes everything, as Hudson Taylor has said. You know, Christ is not Lord of all. He is not Lord at all. And for me, I think it took 20 years to really understand the significance of giving your life to Christ. Was there anything in particular that really made you realise that and made you count the cost? Um, I think it was... Um, uh, a review of where I stood with my marriage, where I stood with my children, where I stood with my work. And I think there was unhappiness on all all fronts. And I think at that point, I realized I needed to 
confront who I was? Was I the person I, I, I thought I was? Or in Christ, was I somebody for whom the debt had been paid? And when I laid everything down on myself and said, Lord, just take me and renew me and let me see who you are, at that point I realized um, that laying it all down was what I had to do. I was holding on to everything, and that was a disaster on all fronts of my life. Was that decision to count the cost? I mean, people use different phrases, don't they? Take, take your faith more seriously, come, you know, become closer to God, that sort of thing. Is that then connected to your decision to go to Nigeria and become, both of you, both you and your wife, become missionaries? Very much so, hence the term new foundations. Uh, it, it was a new foundation for us. It was a new foundation for the people who we work with and certainly a new foundation for delivering health care in that particular area in Nigeria where there just isn't any. Um, so that was, it, it came incidentally though, you know, it, it, coming to Christ is not about establishing a work or rushing off to the mission field or some grandiose gesture that came out of a far more important decision, and that was to choose this day who I was going to serve, and that was Christ. And the expression of that, and going to Nigeria, came out of that and very much led of God. Yeah. It was not our idea at all. What was it about Nigeria specifically? Did you have any kind of connection to the country beforehand? How did God lead you to that part of the world specifically? No, absolutely. Um, it's a place I've never been. Um, we travelled a lot as a family, but never to that end of Africa. We were actually in a church in Falkirk, and we heard a Nigerian pastor uh, just talking uh, about uh, while well, he was preaching and at the end he just gave a little pixelated film of where he was from in the Delta um, and it just it, it registered and he was saying if there's anybody here who's you know involved in healthcare but you hear that a lot as a doctor there's always opportunities to go there's always opportunities to serve and things but for six months it just wouldn't leave us at all um, and, and, and it just it just sort of uh, grew, and there was in in the November that Shirley said, um, well, you know, if it's if, it, if it's bothering us this much, we just ought to go. So we took our son out of school, and uh, bought tickets and, and and flew over there. It was very much uh, just acting on this sort of sense of pressure on the heart to actually respond to something yeah. difficult to articulate, mm. but it was just a, a need to to go. Was that originally supposed to be a short-term thing? Um, it was literally, I, I thought it was just obedience because, you know, if, if, if something is gnawing at you, it's best to just go and check it out. Yeah. And so we, we went over there and that was in a time of civil war. Um, it was very hard indeed. Um, and we met with the pastor who, who we who we'd heard and we stayed in, in a sort of uh, a guarded hotel for a week because there was, it was in curfew. But the last day... Um, he hired a boat and with some other pastors took us out to see communities in the Delta. And it was extraordinary. I mean, just something ignited us and we just felt, first of all, utterly ill-equipped to respond to what we saw. The task was far beyond us, but there was just something, a seed that was planted, and we just felt here is where we ought to be. But beyond that, we couldn't understand how we could affect any change or bring any any help or or anything because at the end of the day you know it's just us it's not an international organization or some sort of international aid or anything and it's not about you know the colonial ideas of missionary medicine and etc way gone you know these are people you know everyone has mobile phones and um and and, and it's quite a developed area i mean see all the politics of oil in that area so it's not the it's not the animals and the savannas it's the bling it's the it's the rat music it's the oil um and uh, and coke you know it's a very different environment so um very corrupt area so for us it was just beyond our understanding but i think the important thing is to say you know like i say here am i send me it was in our hearts to just say lord whatever you want you know whatever you want we're prepared and quite happy to mm. go but beyond that you're going to have to do everything so what was the next steps for you from that moment of understanding this was somewhere that god might be calling you well the next step was to 
um, count the cost and and actually employ brain because he gives us responding to God's call is multifactorial and uh, there has to be a response in the heart but then you know he's given us a brain and, and to actually apply and I thought well I'm a doctor but I don't have any skills in tropical medicine so I need to address that we actually need to train some people here so we advertised across local churches out there for 40 people we would train for a year and we would employ 20 at the end and we did exactly that um, we'd sold our house we bought a boat out there and uh, partners with uh, a doctor who we employed as well a local doctor who who knew the area well he'd been a veterinary doctor in that area coming and going himself and so we trained up 20 uh, who we employed and um, then started a clinic from the boat traveling around 14 communities on a regular basis and we did that for about seven years but at the end of the day you know you're you're coming in it's it's a bun fight hundreds of people if somebody is there with a condition you can treat and you have the medication and they can get to the front of the queue, that's fine. But actually it doesn't change the health-seeking behavior of the people. It's chaotic. And also, more importantly, the opportunity to tell of the love of Christ and to bring the gospel, which ultimately was the purpose, um, was silenced in the bedlam. So the Lord showed us very clearly that we needed to put our feet on the ground and actually develop a clinic, and that's what we began in uh, in 2007. Just paint a picture for those of us who um, don't have any background in medicine and also those of us who've never been to Nigeria. Paint a bit of a picture for us of what are the sorts of challenges that you find in a part of the world that is, I'm sure, very, very different to the UK in all sorts of ways. What were the unique challenges? What was uh, what was difficult about it? But also share some of the stories where you saw God move or where you saw some of those challenges overcome as well. It is a difficult area. Um, I think the biggest thing is perceptions. When you look at a situation, I'm looking at it from one angle, but my brother or sister over there is looking at it from a different angle. But we're looking at the same thing. So my view of it is different to them, although we're both staring at the same object and therefore superficially it looks as though we're exactly on the same page. But And that took a while to understand, actually, that people looked at us in, in a different way because understandably in that area, uh, bird in hand is, is far more important for these people because you can't plan for tomorrow. So when people come with the opportunity of investing in a community in health and employment, then uh, people have uh, an urgency to try and partake of that. But our desire is to find people who are godly, who are seeking to to serve their own people. So I think from culture, religion, what does it mean to be a Christian? In that area, it's often fused with um, hybrid Catholicism and fetish medicine and paganism in a sort of smorgasbord of belief that people say I'm a Christian, but they clearly aren't. Um, Their belief is different. So what it means to be a Christian is the first thing which was a puzzle to us. We had to actually unpick that and actually see if we were all on the same page from a doctrinal point of view. And then I think colour, you know, racism works the other way and there's a real enmity to white people in that area because of the oil industry. So that was something we felt very tangibly. It's a very unsafe area. Um, So that was something that was new new to us to be on the receiving end uh, of uh, hostility because of colour. And then education, wealth, um, and tribalism, and uh, culture. So these things are huge. And in missionary work, for us, the most important thing was to be relational, to simply try and break down all these things by just communication, relating to people, loving them and serving them without any precondition, without any any judgment and, uh, and, and coming alongside them. So that's why we were very much grassroots. And there were times when we couldn't understand how people could be so predatory of their own people. And that for us was a big thing. You know, how could people abuse their own people? One time we were 
doing an eye clinic and we had uh, got a cataract surgeon involved and we had a whole lot of patients lined up and then we were told there was no fuel in the generator for the microscope. Well, that was impossible because we had four big drums. And then it occurred to us that the community had been partying for four days and they had come and stolen it and put it in for generators for films and and dancing and music and all that sort of things. And yet their own people were lined up to get cataracts surgery, but they couldn't because they'd stolen all the, all the, all the petrol. <laughs> and that sort of thing stunned us. But equally how God stepped into a situation was amazing because through prayer, and this may be for a lot of people hard to understand, but we did see God move in in ways I still cannot fathom, but in a sovereign way because on that day when the lights cut and the man in charge of the power said we have no kerosene or diesel I should say we prayed and within 15 minutes all the barrels were full and we did all the operations everyone received their sight and we could not understand how this had happened and we saw that on a number of times cancers healed where I think this is impossible, I don't believe the scan, but then you look and when you examine, the lump is no longer there, just as a result of prayer. Now, of course, that isn't every time. Many times, as we know, we we pray and prayers aren't answered. And it proves to us that God is sovereign. In certain situations, he steps in, other times he doesn't. But that's for him to decide when and where, and for us to just accept that he is sovereign. So we saw God move in many ways. We saw him move in restoration, in breaking down barriers of understanding, so much so that uh, you know the people over there are very much our family. They're poor brothers and sisters in Christ, but we love them. And that, I think, is a miracle in itself. Yeah. Even those who haven't come to Christ, yeah. we still can see a relationship there. So how many years were you working there before the kidnapping happened? 16. 16 years. And during those 16 years, you've, you've mentioned a few things about security. I know when you first went there, I think you talked about the, the hotel being secure and, and guarded. And, and you've mentioned already it's a dangerous part of, of the world to be in. How, how much at the forefront of your minds were the issues of security just on a day-to-day basis? Was this something that you, you were mindful of all the time? Or, or was it that over the course of 16 years, you kind of almost got used to it? Somebody said you know, your security is your profile. Many people over there, most people, engineers, um, have guards and the army who are seconded to protect them. And we don't have that because we're just a very small, you know, charity. So A, we don't even have the option of that. But B, we we felt because we related to the people um, and we were so vulnerable and so unattached to the oil industry, people would see there was no point in taking us because we just didn't have anything worth having. You know, Hudson Taylor in in China eventually opened his entire house up for people to come in and see um, because he didn't have anything. And that was a deal that actually allowed him to minister effectively. And for us, it was the same sort of thing. It was just sort of, well, you know, here they are. If you want us, you can take us. Um, but we're very aware of of the dangers of that area. But normally it's in cities. We've had sort of episode of car shackings in Lagos and other things and gangs on the roads. And, uh, and but I always felt once you got out into the creeks, it's very much it's very different in Nigeria out there. It's much more rural and, and peaceful. I felt that that was safe, and it was an illusion. It wasn't safe. So let's talk about what happened on that fateful day. What are your memories of being taken away and being kidnapped? What, what, do, you, what do you remember of that, uh, that night when that happened? Um, it was our last night, um, and uh, we had just had our normal sort of fa- farewell even, evening meal with the team. We'd gone to bed. And again, being aware of security... You know, our, our our mission house is set behind an eight-foot wall. There's floodlights everywhere. The generators are on all all night. 
with light everywhere. There are grills on the windows, the doors and metal. We have two guys who stay up all night um, to, to, keep, to, keep, to keep an eye on things. Um, all the doors are locked and everything else, and the compound is secure. So we are aware, and we, do, and we did our best to try and acknowledge the threats there. Um, but we had gone to bed, and we had just heard this sudden pounding on the door, and we we got out uh, out of our mosquito net, uh, tried to put on the light, and we realised there was no power at all. They'd cut the generator lines, and uh, then after a few you know huge bangs, we just heard the front door go, and then it, we just knew what was happening. It just could only be guys who were coming for us. And then we heard pounding on Ian's door and eventually silence and then a few blows on Alana's door and then silence. And then by this time we had just got sort of a pair of shorts on and um, and Shirley only had a top on and a pair of trousers and that was it. And then they burst into our our room and they had sort of uh, torches and cagoules and Wellington boots, guns. Uh, frantic, sort of very much uh, high on drugs and agitated, and it was it was very unpleasant, inevitably. And we were sort of pu- pushed out. The guys who had been up on the night um, were had been injured quite bad, badly, and were sitting on the steps. And then we were pushed across um, a field towards the, the river. And at this time of the year, it's about eight foot of rain. So the river is right up to the bank and there's a speedboat there and the community was absolutely still, couldn't hear anyone, no lights on. We were put on the boat and then we took off at speed and they took us out towards the Atlantic where a lot of the oil heads are and the communities are very isolated indeed, more like encampments than anything and that was where we were held in a very sort of remote area so it was uh, you and your wife and ian squire um were there others taken as well yes alana alana carson um who's another optometrist who had come out under ian's auspices ian ran a sister organization and that uh brought the gospel through eye care into africa and south america and he, he'd been doing the same thing for years so he had invited alana to come out under the umbrella of his organization and he partnered with us in establishing an eye clinic so that was her first time on mission yeah. and she was 24 so what do you think was the motivation for them taking you because as you mentioned already i completely understand the mentality of well you know we're, we're doctors we're here to serve the community we don't have much in the in the way of finances or resources you know why would why would anyone come after us we're not attached to the oil industry as you said so i don't know if those thoughts were going through your mind at that moment probably not but but even now do you know the motivation for them coming to um to you who are christians and who are trying to serve and to love that community and trying to provide health care you know what was the motivation for them coming after you money pure and simple uh, as i say i mean i these guys were young men and some middle-aged and they'd made a lot of wrong decisions in their life. But I did understand after we got out, you know, why people did these desperate things because for a lot of people in that environment, it is just hopeless. It's it, it There's no investment in that area and hostage-taking is lucrative and normally if you take... Um, they're taken a politician's wife before us and often members from uh, oil terminals and things and they hold them for a few days and let them go because the old company pay but the gang who took us I don't think fully appreciated the fact that we were not affiliated to anyone Right. and that proved uh, a difficulty during our entire captivity. So they assumed um, that you would have you know, serious amounts of money, either yourself or other people could put up serious amounts of money for, for the ransom. They were assuming that, I suppose. Well, I can only assume, yes. I mean, they came for us because we were in a remote area. We were white, and it's a reasonable thing to think that if they take us, 
on the whole, somebody is going to pay for us and they will get it cash. So tell me more about those. It was 22 days you spent in captivity. Tell me more about what happened, what was going through your mind and what unfolded in that time. Um, After we lost Ian, um, we were moved. After they uh, they killed him, we were moved to uh, a platform in a a flooded area of the jungle. clearing. The flood's about six to eight feet deep and it was just a, a pontoon with bamboo struts on and a sort of thatch frond roof. Sides were open and we were on a mattress and not allowed to stand, stand up or move about. We just had to sit there and there was about six or seven of them who stayed on the platform all day and then the leader of the gang and maybe ten or so others who came at night so on a platform about 16 feet by 10, you had up to 17, 18 people, which is a lot, you know. And they would cook, and uh, drugs were a big, a big factor. Alcohol, uh, intimidation, um, and having lost in the temptation is to turn away and become small and withdraw. But the Lord spoke very clearly to Shirley that we needed to turn and face them, which was not the easiest thing, but actually that was the best thing to have done, to actually engage. And the other thing, bless him, before Ian was killed, when a young man in a canoe asked if we needed anything, we said water, and he interjected, and a Bible. And that Bible proved to be the absolute key to the entire 22 days. A, because we didn't have anything else, and secondly, because we learnt that the Bible is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's also food, it's comfort, it's instruction, it's admonition, it's encouragement, it's a healing balm. It is everything that it says it is. And it has a power that we don't actually appreciate. So much so that actually the gang recognised that and when they became increasingly intimidatory and, and agitated, we would just read the Bible, usually aloud. And when they become loud, we would read it even more loudly. And they would get to the point where they would just give in and fall asleep. And one of them actually said, you know, when you read that book, an angel passes over. We said, why? And he said, because we all fall asleep. Who is this person who you follow? We said that this person is Jesus. And because we were able to speak, sometimes laugh, interject, communicate, it gave us us the ability to witness to them. Because we didn't compromise in anything that we said, in fact, Shirley said that one time, you know, it was after a long, long time of goading us and and threatening us with violence and things. And, and she said, look, if you're going to shoot us, shoot us. But I'll tell you this, we're freer but in, on this mattress than you are. And this actually spawned conversations because, as I say, these were not in, inherently evil men. They were young men who had no love in their lives and they certainly had no love in their theology so and they wanted truth a lot of them had been sold a lie by government and communities and they'd had a lot of dreams shattered and they wanted to know what was true and what was not and inevitably if you're there for 24 hours a day with with at least seven of them some of them actually engaged to the point where we had bible studies and they wanted to know the basis of our faith. And so for us, it became an opportunity to witness, to really understand what made some of these men tick. Now, not all of them, because you know, the majority were definitely not interested in, in communicating. But within it, there was a group of three who became increasingly interested in the person of Jesus Christ. So it was like a Bible study increasingly as the time went. Now that isn't to say it was easy, it wasn't easy. There were enormous ups and downs. But in the middle of that, the take-home, I would say, is that the Bible was fundamental 
to our survival. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Artie Kendall unpacks the problem with living for the praise of others. Missionaries Shirley and David Donovan share their harrowing story of being kidnapped in Nigeria and how God protected them during their 22-day ordeal. And we speak to Louis Giglio about his life-changing ministry to university students. Plus, Tim Hughes reveals how he spends his money. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Just to go back for a moment, you, you mentioned that, that tragically they, they shot and they killed Ian quite early on, I think. Why, why was it? Um, did you understand at the time or do you even understand now why, why he was singled out and why he didn't make it and, and the rest of you did? I don't think he was singled out. I think he was, I think he was standing up and we were sitting down. Uh, we don't wholly know why but somebody said it was to teach us a lesson. Um, maybe it was that. Um, maybe it's because the guy uh, who shot it was on drugs and he didn't like our singing. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that through his death, there's been a revival in that area people coming to Christ so much so that we have eight boatloads of people coming for discipleship camps every fortnight in a way that we never had before he gave his life so as a seed dies in the ground you know a plant grows and there is fruit so God again I have to come back to the fact that God is sovereign in all situations and so I can surmise and I have ideas but Ultimately, what I do know is God, God uses all things for his glory. Mm. I think um, around the time of, of his death, I think there were even press reports in this, this country and some confusion over exactly what had, what had happened. I think there was even press reports suggesting that he'd, he'd died of, um, of some other cause or I think you'd been instructed at one point um, to not not let on the fact that he had been murdered and instead say that he'd refused food and tell, tell me a, a little bit more about that and the, the kind of confusion of the time of what exactly had happened with him uh, I, I'm not going to go into that area if that's okay I mean he's got his family and I, you know I don't think all that speculation I don't think it's helpful to go into that but as you said, you know, you were witness to, to his death and that must have been an incredibly, incredibly difficult thing, incredibly traumatic thing to, to witness. Yes, I, of course. I mean, again, the salacious points of, of his death were, I don't need to, I mean, sorry, I mean, I, I, I know you want details. I don't think that's helpful for people. He was, all I need to say is that he was shot. Yes. No, he I'm was not. Shot in front of us. I'm not asking um, for any more details than that. Yeah, yeah. I've just got to respect his family here. Of um, course. Of course. I mean, at the end of the day, he he was shot in front of us, and it was traumatic. But the most, I think, the point I'd like to make is that when we saw him, you know, after he he was shot, we naturally assumed we were going to be shot next, because you're in the middle of a jungle. You don't know where the shot came from, and we had jumped into the flood, and we just perceived that there was a man with a gun circling around somewhere in the bush we couldn't see in the jungle, and we were going to be shot, and you were completely helpless. Now, as a Christian, that, to me, and this is an important point as opposed to his death, that what do you do as a Christian in that situation? You know, do you mumble half-baked prayers, which is probably what I did? Um, do you think of swimming away uh, and, and just trying to escape and do your best? What, what do you do? And what do you actually believe at that point of view? Because you're looking at eternity, potentially, in the next second or two. And it's a very strange experience because suddenly... All your church attendances, your Bible studies, your home groups, your devotionals, your, all your bits and bobs count for absolutely nothing. Because what you want to know is, am I saved through, by the blood of Christ? And am, am I going to see him if I get a bullet in my head in the next second? Because 
Ian was taken instantly, absolutely instantly, into the presence of Christ. And what does that, what does that look like? What, what is that? What is the experience of that? And I was almost having that conversation whilst I was expecting a bullet. And so it's a very, very salutary experience to actually think I'm going to die in, in, a, in a second or two. What, how do I process that? And to be quite honest, it was just white noise I experienced, except I could say that I'm helpless and I'm throwing myself on your mercy. And I guess that's a bit like the thief, thief on the cross. You know, because he, he had nowhere to take it. He just said, remember me. It's like a cry out. It's just it's just a plea. That's all you can do. But it certainly shows our frailty yes. in the situation. It, it sounds like a... It sounds like 22 days of obviously extreme, extreme lows. And yet, also paradoxically, some... And I'm thinking particularly of what you spoke about earlier in terms of the Bible. Paradoxically, some extreme highs as well in terms of finding yeah. yourself in a completely bizarre situation of, um, <laughs> of, of witnessing and sharing your faith with, with people who, um, you know, had murdered your friend in cold blood. It, it, I guess the question I want to ask is, is what have been the ramifications, have there been ramifications of those 22 days since then? I mean, the, the phrase that comes to mind for myself would be something like, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Have, have those sorts of things happened since because of the ordeal that you went through? <laughs> Funnily enough, I was just speaking at Christian Medical Fellowship or, at the weekend in London and uh, uh, a doctor asked me exactly that question. The, the answer is no, there was no PTSD whatsoever. Absolutely none. Um, uh, and I believe that is because Christ was there and walked us through the whole experience and has continued to do so. I think also because it showed us the reality of Christ, the reality of uh, God's holding us in that situation. And since then, it's given us uh, certainly a new sobriety in life, uh, the ability to see the wood from the trees, uh, and also, I rejoice every day for the freedom, because actually, you know, to be uh, captive in any sense is, is, is really, it's a really hor- horrible thing not to be able to get up or stand or do anything without asking. Um, so I think I'm sure anyone who's been in prison feels exactly that, the absolute appreciation of freedom that I rejoice in every day and I and also the joy of the creation every day and the 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 privilege of having a second chance to witness and be serious about who Christ is in our life and to to testify and that's why I'm happy to come on and talk about it not because I mean okay so yes it's a good story but the important thing is actually to point people to Christ and say that everyone has their own hostage situation be it bereavement or or death, depression, illness, everyone has them. Just for us, it was that. But actually, the key thing in these situations is to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And in doing so, we can lay aside every weight and every besetting sin that enables us to run with patience and race that's set before us from Hebrews 12. And I think that's the key thing I would want people to know, that actually he is our sufficiency. He is our all in all in any situation where it seems like the, the pressure of the physical is going to supersede the spiritual, and that is not the case. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was reading, I think, quite, quite early on when you were taken captive, um, you managed to get a guitar, and we're even singing "Amazing Grace" together, which, of course, reminded me of the stories in the New, in the New Testament of the early Christians who were in prison and singing hymns and songs. Um, tell me more about that that event and what was going through your mind as as that was happening. Because again, a kind of a kind of story. It's very difficult, I think, for most Christians in this country to get their head around what what must that be like. And and yet, you've lived through that exact experience. Yeah. Um... I th- well, I suppose, as you say, I think a lot of Christians are in difficult situations and you have to decide where to turn to for, for solace and the joy, I think, of the old hymns are, are such that the words 
an, um, are a shorthand expression of what you want to say, but perhaps you don't have the words at that time to actually say, say mm. it. And Amazing Grace is, is, is one such hymn, isn't it? It's, it's so affirmatory of what Christ has done for us, yeah. but also it recognizes our weakness. So I, I find that beer, <laughs> strangely, beer on a platform in a flood in Nigeria or sitting in a church in the UK, I think when we delve into the words of some of the, I have to say the older hymns, mm -hmm. we see a poetry and a depth of Christian experience of the author that actually we can ride on the back of because actually it gives voice to the words which perhaps we don't have. So even in that situation and being over here, at the time it felt very much like just being in church, being in a state where you're actually affirming where your, where your foundation is, and that's in Christ. So I'd love to hear a bit more about, of course, the, um, the rescue and you coming out of that situation. As I say, it was 22 days in captivity. Did you have any kind of inkling towards the end of those 22 days that you might be, um, you might be out of that situation and um, that there would be hope that you would, um, would survive and ultimately come back here to the UK? Did you have any kind of inkling towards the end of those 22 days that something might be about to happen? I think that uh, all the way through, there were little blips of hope that something was happening, uh, an intermediate was involved. But then as soon as you were given a little bit of hope and you were told tomorrow everything's going to, and tomorrow came and it didn't, any time you heard anything positive, you were pretty sure you couldn't bank on that. And sure enough, the next day it didn't happen and therefore you began to not trust any messages of good hope. So we, at the beginning, felt we were going to be out in a couple of days, but actually as the weeks began to go, we realized that here were a gang who normally operated in the local, and they had no concept of international situations. And therefore, they had no understanding of how to extract money internationally. You know, I think their view was to you get on an airplane with an Adidas bag of fivers, and it just isn't like that. And when they realized that, they were pretty much in the dark as well. So that, well, well, when you don't have trust in the competency of your captors, that's quite a chilling situation. And that's why they were thinking of selling us on and doing other things. So it led to enormous periods of uncertainty. So, that's it. so it was a roller coaster of hope and despair mm -hmm. oscillating backwards and forwards. Um, but um, yes, I said, so I, uh, we didn't, I mean, even on the last day, as I wrote, we had a sense of despair on the last day that nothing was happening. You know, the flood was going down, everyone had run out of drugs, and it was just everyone was ill. Um, it was like a, you know sewage everywhere. It was just it was just awful, and so you do have a sense of despair. Um, but then you just felt there had to be a purpose in this in some way. But as you, you know, as I said, God, if God is sovereign, it may not be the way you want it to end. And it's coming to that acceptance, which is the key. So take me through that final day and exactly what happened from your point of view on that on that day. Um, well, the last day, uh, as I say, we were um, pretty much in despair because the flood was going down fast and the dry season begins at the beginning of December um, and you could see the roots of the trees now so very obviously and that concentrated the detritus and sewage. You know, 17, 17 of us on the platform and not a toilet and this is stagnant flood, and they were cooking, and there was just rubbish in the flood, and just oil and thick and insects and everything else. And uh, a number of them had malaria. The guy who cooked us our bowl of noodles every day had dysentery. Um, we thought, you know, if we get ill, there's not a lot of hope because we had no immunity at all to anything, and a lot of insects and everything else. And so. Uh, and they were getting irritated and frustrated as well because a lot of the gang 
who didn't know what was happening were equally irritated and despairing. So we awoke with a normal day of, uh, you know, not knowing what was going to happen. It was very hot. And normally the couple who come from being on duty over the light in a canoe um, take drugs and there weren't any drugs where everyone is coming down they're all irritable and they normally play rap on, on phones and we suddenly everything just suddenly went quiet and we heard uh, a song that instead of being rap off a mobile phone this sounded like you know it had bass it had ambience it had surround sound it sounded like you know, a, a really quality hi-fi of some type. And it was this song, God Will Make A Way, where there seems to be no way, God will make a way today. And we'd never heard a song like that. I'd never heard the last song, Don Moen, I believe. And it and it just played. And you could hear the sound around the whole of this clearing. And you couldn't hear anyone speak None of the phones were going. It was just this song. And as it faded, all the phones began again, the cacophony and the shouting and the swearing and all this, that and the other. We looked at each other and Alana said, did you hear that? And we just couldn't process this except that something was going to happen. But we didn't know what. And the day carried on its normal slow pace of the, argue, the petty arguments and infighting and ablutions and bits and bobs. And then the general, as he was called, the leader of the gang, normally came under the cover of darkness at night. But on this occasion, he came at four o'clock or so in the afternoon. Uh, but not on his own on his boat. He came with all his cronies. These were quite a, a toxic and malign bunch of men who never interacted um, just sat on the boat at the side of the platform smoking and uh, he got on the platform with all his cronies and they sat there and then he just asked me, Vara, the interpreter, although he could have addressed me in English and he spoke a bit of English, what are you going to say about your number two? And I said, well, we don't have a number two, Ian's a number one. And I said, I'll say whatever you want. And he said, well, you, you say he died of starvation. I said, fine, fine. And we sat there, and nothing happened. And a few hours went by, and the evening began to come, and it began to get dark. And then there were instructions, and a couple of guys went off on a canoe, and they brought another speedboat out of the jungle. It was covered in vines, and a big 75-horsepower engine on the back. And we were told to get up out of the off the mattress, out of the net, and we were told to get on the boat. And I remember as I got on the boat, I realized we were not going to be coming back. I didn't know what was happening, but I I knew that this was a final event. And I just put my hand on the shoulder of this young man who was most engaged regarding the gospel, and I said, get out of this madness. And he looked at me, and that was it, and then I was pushed onto the boat. And we had life jackets on and we had sort of uh, uh, T-shirts tied over our heads and we were told to bend down. And I thought we were going out onto the main river, but we were taken into the jungle even more and we were bent over because branches were sort of scraping us on the shoulders and head. We carried on for about an hour and a half and it, it, didn't, feel, it didn't feel good because we were going into a, a remoter area and I thought, well, what's going to happen here? And we couldn't talk, so we couldn't, although each of us were never next to each other, we were just bent over in our own thoughts, and then the boat stopped, and it was dark now, and we heard voices. And we couldn't we couldn't hear the general's boat. We were on one boat, and he was on a different boat, but he somehow disappeared. And suddenly from up ahead, we heard uh, a, a, a real accelerating engine and this boat roared towards us and then stopped. And there was a general on it I could hear. And he was shouting some, something. And then, and then he drove off back from the, the direction that we had come. So he disappeared behind us. 
and then the guy started our engine and we carried on for about 400 feet and then they just tore everything off us and said go and for the first time we saw land it was a sort of embankment there were two guys reaching down with their hands and they pulled us out of the boat uh, onto sort of a, a clearing and there was a four by four with its doors open and sirens and everything else and some of the army and that was how it ended and it was abrupt it was sudden it was extraordinary that God had made a way where there seemed to be no way and he made a way that day amazing story of how you were how you were rescued obviously from your point of view but I imagine well I know there would have been an awful lot of things happening behind the scenes that you wouldn't have yeah. been aware of while you were captured presumably though you've yeah. since found out some of those things so can you almost sort of tell that story again but from the point of view of what was happening behind the scenes and who was involved in order to get you guys freed well obviously behind the scenes were our sons who went through a really difficult time and you know give testimony to their resilience um, because they they were not told an awful lot, but they were they had gone through an awful lot in terms of training. If they got phone calls and and the foreign office were involved, and uh, I can't speak highly enough of the foreign office. They were absolutely amazing with regards to our family. My brother was amazing. He was in close liaison with the foreign office, as was Ian's brother and his wife and. Um, the Nigerian government, I believe, were involved, and the Nigerian Secret Service, and uh, all the communities in which we worked. They had got, gone up even to give the kidnappers some money to give us food, because the kidnappers didn't even have any food to feed us. So unbeknownst to us, the communities in which we worked had actually given them money so we, we could actually eat. So there was support from every level. Um, internationally, locally, regionally, the Delta Security uh, Forces, the Army. You know, amazing, uh, amazing. And and the National Crime Agency as well in the UK, who were incredible, and after we got back were so supportive. Um, The guys in the National Crime Agency and the Foreign Office and even even the High Consulates in, in Nigeria such human, gracious, and kind people. Um, really touching, really touching. Even to the point where my mother was terminally ill, and they went and hesitated her for a couple of hours just to keep her company. You know, just utter humanity. Yeah. So, but in terms of what happened, I've no idea. Really? No, I've no idea at all. I mean, obviously, it's machinations, and and our family were not told. But this is, you know, is what happens behind the scenes. And uh, uh, it's just incredible to be on the receiving end. Yeah. But what did touch me was the humanity of the people who work in those organizations. Mm. Extraordinary mm. people. So I find that, um, I find that surprising that to, to this day, I mean, if I were to ask you, do you know ultimately what was the clincher? What was the reason why they let you go? You, you just would have to answer I don't know to that question. I don't know. They wanted a lot of money. They wanted £2.4 million. But the British government don't pay ransoms. Mm. And our family certainly don't have that. I guess you can rule some things out. So obviously you can rule out the fact yes, that your, yes. your family yes. didn't give any money. Um, yes. And the British government say they wouldn't have given any money. But, but as for the actual reason, we uh, perhaps will never know. I, I have no idea why they're in the haste us on that day. Um, as I say, the communities in which we work were involved, and um, I don't know, amnesties and uh, local government, and I heard politicians being involved with the gang. I mean, all sorts of theories. But, you know, Nigeria is a tortuous place, but I know the Nigerians were incredibly helpful mm. and were closely involved, but uh, the details I genuinely can't answer you. Mm. Um. I wanted to to end by talking about forgiveness because you've already said to to many journalists that you have forgiven your captors, which I guess from a Christian point of view, I guess I could say, well, yes, in theory, as a Christian, I am called to forgive everyone. But the actual practice of that, the actual decision to forgive someone who has 
uh, committed that level of sin against you, surely, to put it mildly, can't be easy. So tell me a bit about that journey for you of of forgiveness and what's that what that has looked like for you in terms of that Christian principle being practically outworked in your life. I think we we knew the sort of people who took us because the community in which we work were the very sort of people who took hostages. So we knew the personalities of these sorts of people. But with always people are not all evil, even even the darkest people you know, are are capable of redemption. And as a Christian, we have to keep that in view, that, that God loves all, all people. But I think forgiveness is not a, a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a very much, it's like love. It's, it's, it's perceived as something that is soft. But actually, forgiveness and love, I think, are, are similar things because they're very active. You actively have to love someone it's not a passive emotion, and forgiveness is not passive, it's active. And I think when you get to know people in that situation, I saw the darkness in them, but I, saw, I also saw some, some good in some of them as well, just broken, broken people who have been dealt a, you know, a, a really bad hand. And sometimes as a GP, you know, I see patients who, who you know? How can they be in that situation? And then you read a psychiatrist or forensic report on them, and you can see that actually, if I'd been dealt that pack of cards, I could have gone down that way too. It, as I say, forgiveness is active, and I look back on what they did, and yes, there were some things that were just absolutely horrendous, and I think, but that is what Milan is capable of, and I know also what I have done. And if I start to point the finger at them, I need to point the finger at me. And that, again, is something which is active. So at times, yeah, I reflect on things. And at times, even then, I thought I could pick up a gun and and do something. But then you just have to look at yourself, I think, at the end of the day and see what you've done and what you're capable of, murder in your heart. And I think as a Christian, you, you... if we're truly reflective, we see that actually we can't we can't hold on to things. It, it, it ultimately is destructive for yourself as well. You're now based back here in in the UK. I imagine you have friends, contacts in Nigeria, but I imagine returning is is probably out of the question. Uh, we've been back twice. We've been back, back again in three okay. weeks' time, actually. Really? Yeah. yeah. Strikes yeah. strikes I mean, me as quite a brave thing to do. Uh. Well, the clinic's off bounds at the current time um, because there's a, another gang in the area doing exactly the same thing who's actually related to mem- the gang who took us. So it's uh, it's ongoing and the, the politics in that area are particularly difficult at the time. So again, it's the other aspect. We have to be wise. So we we meet with the team in in, uh, in in an area that's just not as quite as dangerous as that area. So, yeah, no, it's going on well. And as I say, the clinic is thriving, the team are thriving, people are coming to Christ, and the work is continuing well. So it's a blessing. Well, that's a wonderful way people can support you then, by, by purchasing the book and the, the funds going back into the work that continues uh, remarkably in that, in that part of the world. Um, would you ever consider moving out there on a more permanent basis? Uh, I, no. I mean, there's a mission field here in this country. I'm a GP uh, full-time, well, three-quarter time in a practice outside of Cambridge, and I see that there's an awful lot of... Um, the Lord showed me quite clearly there's a mission field here. You don't have to go to And also, I think we've always said over the past five years that this is a Nigerian mission. And what we're doing is empowering our brothers and sisters to take it over ultimately. And we gently are stepping back. And that's been on the cards for a long time, way before the, ki- the kidnap. And with farms and a school and other projects to make it self-sustaining, we want that to be a, le- a legacy for mm. them out there, our brothers and sisters out there, to take over. Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. David Donovan, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me today. Thank you very much.
I'm Sam Howes. You have been listening to The Profile Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly was blown away by David's testimony. You can read all about that story as well in the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine. If you're not already a subscriber, why not request a free copy of this issue? Not only will you be able to read about David Donovan, but we've got R.T. Kendall writing for us this month on living for an audience of one. Our interviewee this month is Louis Giglio, so you can read all about the spread of the passion conferences in the USA that he's set up and how that's become a worldwide movement of Christian students. You can also read about how Tim Hughes and Moiwa spend their money. We've been talking to Tim Hughes, Moiwa, Catherine Hill from Care for the Family and also Natalie Williams, who works for Jubilee Plus, about Christian attitudes towards money. We've actually quizzed them on how they spend their cash. Read that in the latest issue. There's so much to enjoy. Also, Glenn Scrivener writing on Down syndrome abortion and the disturbing consequences of getting rid of God. A very powerful piece indeed. Another one of my favourites is Chris Llewellyn this month writing about the end of Hustle. Chris, of course, is the lead singer of the band Wren Collective and he's got some fantastic insights to share, not just on worship but on a host of other subjects and he writes every month in the magazine. The other regular columnist is N.T. Wright. The tricky question that Tom Wright is tackling this month is, the traditional view of salvation says that if someone is not a follower of Jesus, they'll spend eternity in hell. Do you agree? Read N.T. Wright's answer to that question in the latest issue, plus all those other articles. Get it free now at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. That's it for now on the show. We will see you next time.